0: Last week, as we started our Christmas series, we began talking about descriptions that Jesus is given, that the Messiah was going to be given in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6. We went through last week talking about the wonderful Messiah, the Pele Yods, the one, that counselor, that strategist, the one who comes alongside we can imagine. He's that cut above. What we expect in that cut above, that, that step above anybody else who could come alongside. We talked about how God was so excited about proclaiming his message, about the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, that 700 years before his birth, he put it out there to his prophet Isaiah. He said, Let me explain to you who is coming so you can anticipate. Who he is. Much like we anticipate the presents and all the stuff that goes on with our Christmas season. He wanted the Israelite people and those who were followers of God to anticipate the Messiah coming. To look forward to his coming. And have an understanding of who he was really going to be. Now we know that the Jews totally missed it. They they were expecting this warrior king to come in and set up his throne in Israel and was going to totally lift up the nation, and it was, going it was not really the person that God was intending. He had something greater in store, more than just a king, a ruler set up in, on this earth. He was going to send a king, yes. He was going to send a warrior, yes. He was going to send a priest, yes, all combined together in one person, a babe. A little, tiny baby. Not some warrior stepping in, coming out on his white charger, but God was going to enter the world in flesh just like the rest of us did as a baby. Weak, helpless, crying, pooping in our diapers. Just like everyone else, God came that way. So that we could relate to him, not because not so he could relate to us, because he knows us inside and out, right? He knows how many hair, how many hairs are on top of our head, or in, in Kim's case, how he came as a babe, so we could relate to him. So he could pull us into his kingdom. So we're going to read again this morning in Isaiah chapter nine, verses one through seven, to remind us of what it is that God is doing here and who it is that he's called to the king, to this throne. Starting in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who were in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness... One of them, on them had light is shown. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased his joy. They rejoice before you as with a joy of the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his sh- for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, burned as fuel for the fire. Look at this in verse 6. Pay attention to what he says here. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now it's easy to get bogged down in some of the names and the places. And it's like, okay, we're talking about Midianites and talking about Naphtali and Zebulun. What does that have to do with? with what is going on right here, as we're talking about Jesus, right? Remember, this is 700 years. This was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah lived 700 years before, and this message was given to him in anticipation of what was to come. But it was also given so they, the people at that time might have hope to know that their physical needs were going to be met by God as well. Not just looking forward for the future, but that they're right here and right now, God was going to meet their needs. See, at that time in history, the Assyrians who flexed their muscles and they were doing raids into the north and eastern parts of uh, Israel where Naphtali and Zebulun, which we read about in verse 1, that's where they were located. And so they were humbled because they couldn't keep them out. And so God says here, he says, you know, just like they were humbled, you're going to be humbled as well until you humble yourself before me. God knew what they were feeling, and he gave them a promise, a promise of a Messiah who was going to rise up and save them from their physical enemy. The local prophecy at that time, we believe, came through the person of Hezekiah, as he was able to hold off the Assyrian Empire laid down the road. But there's so much more here as we look toward the application to Christ, look toward the application of how it applies to Jesus, Because there's so much here that doesn't really apply to Hezekiah. Yes, it points to him, but the application for us and the application for the world is God is going to send his Savior, the Messiah, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Be afraid. Have courage. Have joy. I can go buy Christmas presents. I can go put gas in my car. I can... Buy that diamond ring for my wife. No ladies are going, woo there are no hooting and hollering going on there. We get, or maybe when if, if the Broncos ever win the Super Bowl again, they'll be hooting and hollering from Dan in the back row. Those things bring us great joy, but God is saying, I'm sending you my Messiah so you might have great joy, unending joy for all of life, for now and into the future. He says, I'm going to bring that joy, I'm going to bring that relief to you in a way that you could never have anticipated. You're expecting this, I'm going to do it in a way that's going to totally blow your mind. In fact, he says, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send it through a child. I'm going to send a child to bring that relief and joy. A child who's going to lead you. In fact, it says the government's going to be on his shoulders, right? A child who will lead you. And he's going to be that wonderful counselor, that mighty God, that everlasting Father, that Prince of Peace. And that child will bring hope and peace and love and joy into our lives. And we put these words up here on the wall, not just because they're the words, how he wants us to impact those around us. And today we're going to look at the second of the two-word phrase. Last week we took, looked at Wonderful Counselor. Today we're going to look at the second one, Mighty God. And you're going to see the babe born in Bethlehem in a whole new light. Hopefully that will change your view toward the Christmas season and maybe even change your outlook on life and what, what's going on in your hearts right now. As, as we did last week, we talked about the Hebrew word, and what that means, Wonderful Counselor. With uh, Pele Yawatz and what that really means and being that one who's set apart, that lifted up. Today, mighty God, the Hebrew word for that is El Gibor. El Gibor. And if you look in, the, in in scriptures, El is short for Elohim, which also means the mighty one, the mighty God. In fact, in Genesis 1-1, that's the word used of God. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the mighty one Created heavens and the earth. He's the only one who could have done that. He spoke it with the words of his mouth, and he says, "I spoke it, and it came to be." How mighty is a God like that? How mighty is 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 He? How great is He to be able to do all that in just a spoken word? Later on, in John chapter one verse one, we read that it says, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God," referring to Jesus. He is saying, in the beginning of creation, in the beginning before creation, Jesus was with God, and not not only was he with God, he was God in the beginning, in the flesh. What a great paradox there. God's big promise to us, this mighty God of ours, this great paradox he's promising something so great from something so little. what's funny is Gibor, the Hebrew word for there, also means mighty so not only is he saying God is the mighty one saying above and beyond right just like last week we talked about you know Pele-Yawah, that advisor to the kings who's above and beyond one step above and he's so intelligent and so smart nobody else can come in Next to him, we're talking about this with God as well. He's the mighty, mighty one, able to accomplish above and beyond what we think. In fact, in Judges chapter 6, if you want to turn there real quick, Judges chapter 6 is a story of the Midianites and how God uses, in fact, it refers back to there in verse 4 of what we just read, the Midianite story there where he goes and he humbles the Midianites, he defeats the Midianites. His mighty God uses such a small army. To defeat this huge, massive force. Look with me in, Ju- in Judges chapter 6 real quick. Judges chapter 6. It says, Now the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel and because Midian, the people of Israel, because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. The Midianites and the kites, and the people of the east would come up against them. For they would come up with them and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land they had as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out, for help to the Lord. Now, this story goes on for two more chapters. We're not going to read all that. I'm just going to summarize it for you this morning, but I want you to look at what happened right there. Israel is suffering under the hand, under the oppression of the Midianites. What is it they finally do? They've had their eyes only set on themselves, but look what it said there in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil on the side. They were only thinking about themselves. They're only thinking about their joy in the here and now, and not what God has planned for them in the future. They're only thinking about how they can fill their bellies right now, and how they can get one up on their neighbor. So God used the Midianites to humble them for seven years, until finally, they finally cried out to the Lord for help. They, and so He did. They've been trying to defeat the Midianites using their own power. They've been trying to to go against them and trying to hide their stuff away and trying to keep their produce away from the Midianites. In fact, God sends a Deliverer, and the Deliverer is found in one of these very secluded locations. The angel comes to announce the Deliverer that he's going to be the one that God's going to send, and he finds this Deliverer in the threshing floor. Down. Normally, when they they thresh the wheat, they would be laid laid out there on the ground and they pick up the the wheat and they throw it into the air, and the chaff flies off and the wheat falls to the ground because it's heavier. And they throw it up again, and the chaff flies off and the wheat falls down. They find him in a pit in the wine press. They've moved all the wheat into this wine press so he could hide from the Midianites because he didn't want them to see him throwing the wheat up into the air. He would take it and throw it just over the lip. And will blow the chaff away, then fall back down. And you throw it up just a little bit, it will blow the chaff away, and fall back down. he press impress from the Midianites. And I love what he says. He says, Gideon, mighty man of valor. <laughs> he's, he calls, he's down here hiding, and he says, you mighty man of valor. Like, hello, you are not where you need to be. You need to be out here serving. You need to be out here fighting. And I'm coming here to set you, lift you up and pull you out of this pit and set you up as the mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, uh, I think you got the wrong guy. <laughs> I don't think it's me that you want. He sets up some tests for God. He so to, to just to prove, so God, I, I want you, if you're going to call me as the mighty man of valor, you're going to call me as a believer, then you've got to do these two tests. And of course, God passes the test. Now he's got no choice. So God tells him, Gideon, I want you to raise up an army. Go around the, vill- go around the towns, I want you to raise up an army because we're going to go and take on the Midianites and he raises up a, an army it's a decent size but it's got to go against 120,000 men in the Midianite army he leads this army start going out to battle and god says yeah do you, you want to go home go ahead and go and a bunch of the people leave the river and have them get let them get a drink and everyone was just sticking his face in the water and, and drinking, drinking, drinking the water, you can send him home. And all those that grab the water and cup in their hands and lap it up like a dog, those are the ones you're going to keep. So Gideon is left with 300 men to go against an army of 120,000 just over the next rise. And If you read to the end, you find out that God does a miracle through those 300 men because they were willing to, To say, God, we trust you. We don't understand. We don't know what's going on, but we're trusting in you and we're trusting in your leader. We're trusting in the the deliverer that you've sent, that you're giving him the wisdom, help us face this battle. And they defeat, an army of 300 defeats an army of 120,000 with the help of God. See, God did something great through something so small. Just like he's going to send this baby into the world, he's going to accomplish something great through that baby, the babe Jesus, that we lift up. We look at a, in the manger scene over here, this little tiny baby's innocent little thing that is crying and hungry, and it just lays there and, and, and acts like a baby does, and yet God's going to lift him up and raise him up and do something so great and mighty through him for us. That babe prophesied to become the mighty mighty one. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, he says, "I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." The very first instance in God's word where after Adam and Eve sinned, God finds them in the garden, and he says, "Hey, what you doing? Where, where are you, Adam?" Oh, we're over here behind the tree. We're hiding. Why are you hiding, Adam? Because we're naked. We didn't want you to see us. Who told you you were naked? Um, well, we they said, did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat from? Well, God, you see, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. So it's all her fault that I ate the fruit. And so therefore, now we're in this state where we are. Well, and Eve says, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, I gave him the fruit, but the snake that you made, God, That snake convinced me that it was going to be okay, so therefore the snake is a fault. And really, ultimately, the snake that you made, God, if you hadn't made that snake, we would be in this state of affairs that we find ourselves in. In spite of all of that, God says, I'm going to make a way for you to come back to me, to redeem mankind to myself. So he puts this prophecy out there in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the snake, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Talking specifically about Christ, the Messiah, who was going to come in the way distant future. That at some point that Messiah, that Savior was going to come, and as he's crushing the serpent's head under his heel strike his heel, prophesying spring was going to be the package to bring healing and redemption to not just Israel, but to all mankind, including you and I. And that's not the only prophecy there. In fact, if there are 12 different prophecies all about Jesus, all about him before, he could even walk. 12 prophecies in the, in the scriptures in the Old Testament that says, this is who this child is going to be. But there happened before he could even walk while well, he was still crawling around while he's hanging out in his in in the, in the cradle. I mean, look at it on the screen behind me. It says he's going to be the offspring of a woman. We just read that. He can be born of a virgin, be called that he'll be the son of God, he'll be a descendant of Abraham, of the line of Isaac, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, from the family of Jesse, from the house of David, born in Bethlehem, the city of Bethlehem, presented with gifts. And then after he's born, all these children are going to be killed. Those are things that he, as a little baby, could not control. He had no way to control who his family ancestry was going to be. He had no way to control where he would be born. He had no way to control that gifts were going to be brought to him. He had no way to control that all these children were going to be killed after his born because Herod was jealous. In fact, for just eight of those prophecies to have been fulfilled in the, in the person of Jesus, of this baby, is 1 to the se- times 10 to the 17th power, scientists say, for one person to have c- to fulfilled just eight of those. And think about this, Jesus fulfilled through over 300 prophecies in his lifetime. That's one in 100 quadrillion. That's more people that have ever lived on this earth for just eight of those prophecies. I mean, picture it this way. If you are to take a silver dollar And you're to mark one of them. And you're to throw them into the state of Texas. They would stack two feet deep. Two feet high. And you mix them around, mix them around, mix them around, mix them around. So that one that's been marked is just getting tossed all over. Maybe it's Amarillo. Maybe it's in Houston. Maybe it's in Odessa. Maybe it's down in El Paso. Maybe it's way up north. Maybe it's right in the middle in Dallas. Who knows? Maybe it's in the middle of the desert. stuck in a underneath into Texas. Walk across the desert. We'll give you some water. But you walk out across, and when you think you've gotten to the right point, you stop and you pick up a silver dollar. And you pick up that silver dollar. And that's the one. That would be the same as Jesus being fulfilled just eight of those prophecies. And he did it, eight of those. He did 12 of them before he could even walk. I'm talking about a mighty, mighty God who's able to accomplish that. He can accomplish so much more in our lives. A God who can fulfill 300 prophecies, which is like 1 times 10 to the 300 power, is huge. This mighty, mighty God that we serve is able to do so much more. In fact, he, 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 Jesus in his own life, He does so many mighty miracles out there that it just baffles the people. It baffles all those around him. As, he, as we look at his life, I mean, think about this for a minute. Jesus, he hears about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is going is, is to be killed. He's kind of in, in sorrow. He's kind of frustrated and angry about it. Not angry, but he's, he's sad about it because this is his cousin. It's the one he used to grow up playing Israelites and Egyptians with. And John the Baptist hated it because Jesus always go, and knock all the Egyptians down, right? Just kidding. This is his cousin. He loved his cousin. He, and the, the, he was the, the forerunner to Jesus. And now Herod's going kill, to kill John the Baptist. So he goes out with his disciples. They leave town. They go out into the wilderness, and people follow him. They follow him out into the wilderness. And they're like, Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches. So he sits down and begins to teach them. He begins to teach them. And then as he's teaching them, he realizes the, late nights get, the daylight's getting set on. It's getting later. And he turns to his disciples and says, okay, well, let's, what do we have that we can feed all these people with? They've been here with us all day long learning and, and learning about God's word. What do we have that we can feed the people with? And they look at each other. They look over here. Turn to Judas because he carries the purse. Um, well, Jesus, there's this little boy over here. This little boy's got five loaves of bread and two fish. The only smart one in the bunch was a teenager. Brings five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, that'll work. I can work with that. I can take that little bit, and I can do something mighty. And it says, he he took those five loaves and two fish, and he prayed. It says, and then in in Matthew chapter 14, he says, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. How many ate? they all ate and were satisfied out of five loaves and two fish. And then they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Over fifty, we can, we can hypothesize this, but over 15,000 people. If we think there's one man, one woman, and one child, at least there. Maybe may have been more children. At, at least 15,000 people were probably there. And Jesus fed them. With five loaves and two fish, a mighty, mighty God performing a mighty, mighty miracle. He goes on from there and he tells his disciples, "Okay, I'm going to stay behind. I need to ref. I need to recharge. I'm going to go on the mountain and pray. And while I'm up there praying, you guys go ahead and grab, jump in the boat, and go across the lake. I'll meet you on the other side." They're like, "Okay, well, we'll go." And so they jump on the boat. They start going across the lake. These are experienced fishermen. They know the lake. They they, they know how to get across. They know how to work the boat. And while they're out there in the middle of the lake, Jesus, in the middle of praying in the middle of the night, about 3 in the morning, he gets up. He he sees them in trouble out there in the middle of the lake. He sees them in trouble. I don't know how good your eyesight is, but mine's not that good. He knows... he sees them in trouble in the middle of the lake. He gets up and begins walking across. The lake was not frozen. He begins walking across the lake on the water. He gets to where they are, and they're like, it's a ghost! It's a ghost! Don't, don't, don't come any closer! He says, don't worry, it's me. And Peter says, ask me to come. Well, hello? on <laughs> the waves, right? Peter gets out there in the middle of the, the lake, the, the, the waves and the wind that's going on around him. His faith falters, it begins to and they go back to the lake to go back to the boat together. This mighty, mighty God's able to do some great and mighty things. And Jesus says they got in the boat. He says, Oh, you have little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got to the boat, the wind ceased And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This was that baby. This was that little tiny baby that was born 30 years earlier. This is is not some mighty warrior. This is that little baby, the mighty, mighty God, came to do this great thing through Jesus, as Jesus. He fed 15,000 plus. He walked on water. He empowered his friend to walk on water. He calmed the storm and did so much more. He healed the demon. He healed the man of the being demon-possessed. He healed the sick and the lame and the blind all around him. He's able to accomplish things because he's God. Those are only things only God can do. Pure man like you and I. This is such a mighty work in a small package. See, 2,000 years ago, God sent a package to earth God sent this package to earth that he said to Mary, handle with care because you're holding Almighty God. Take care of this little package because he's going to be something special. That little babe was mighty at his birth. He grew up to even be even mightier as an adult, conquering the great forces effortlessly. The great forces Effortlessly. The wind, the rain, the sickness. We talked last week about the woman who had the issue of blood and reached over, and just touched the hem of his garment and got healed. They came, this demon possessed man went back to his village and now he's in his right mind and clothed, right? He goes back to the village and he tells everybody else what God has done for him. And as Jesus lands, as disciples land now, after. He comes to them on the water. They land and and across the town in that area, the whole village comes to him and they want to come around and say, Jesus, heal us. Jesus, let us touch you. Let us be around. Teach us who you are and how we can know God better. God's doing a great thing. But what great forces are against us? What great forces are in your life keeping you depressed and discouraged, keeping you down from what God, what is it God wants you to do? Maybe it's unemployment. It's a job situation, not having the right kind of job, not making enough money that it would provide for your family. Maybe it's fear of something, fear of the future, fear of for your family, fear of sickness, fear for your kids, some temptation in your life. Is that what's keeping you down? Is that that great force that keeps Satan keeps bringing up, bringing up, bringing up over and over and over again in your life? Is it, impro- is it an improper relationship that you may be in, where you've crossed? Maybe it's not sexual, but you've crossed the line and just talking to them, and, and maybe you've spoken rudely to them, and now you've kind of feel you've kind of ruined your testimony. It's a struggle with a relationship. Maybe it's self doubt. Discouragement or depression? Is it substance abuse or alcohol abuse? What, I don't know what's going on in your life, but you know who does? Our mighty, mighty God. He knows exactly what is going on. What great forces are being gathered around you to keep you depressed and discouraged. And he wants to be there to say, step out of the boat. Come join me. I'm here for you. There is no force in this world. There's no great force in this world that can defeat God, that can come against Him. Whatever it is that you are facing right now, whatever it is that's come to your mind as we've been talking, I can see some of you going, uh, yeah. Whatever it is that great force... Satan wants to discourage you. Satan wants to weaken you. To do for us what we could not, what we cannot do for ourselves. Sin. Starting with that little area in our lives, that three little word that's called sin, that we cannot get rid of. God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He said, I'm going to come as a babe. I'm going to live this perfect life, and I'm going to die for you on the cross. And as I die for you on the cross, I'm going to take your sin upon me, and I'm going to pay the price for your sin because you can't do it you can't be good enough you can't go out there and do enough good things you can't feed enough homeless people you can't take care of your neighbor you can't be nice to that brother-in-law sister-in-law mother-in-law why is it never the father-in-law you can't be good enough to them you can't be nice enough you can't do enough good things to take away your sin so i'm going to do it for you just like he did here those great forces. What is it that Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7? How do we do this? How do we, get, how do we get, have, invite God in to take care of this? And cast all your anxiety upon Him because He what? He cares for you. Cast all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Humble yourself before Him. Acknowledge that He is the one who can take care of those great forces. Acknowledge that you can't do it in your own power, in your own strength, and you cast those anxieties upon Him. Those two things working together relieve the stress and the frustration in our minds. That's not saying Satan's not going to throw it back up at you again. But as we go before him, as we go back to him, we humble ourselves, we admit that we're not as mighty as we pretend to be, that I'm not as strong as I pretend to be. My bootstraps could only go so high. Gods are higher. I'm not as strong and mighty as as I think I am. God, I need your help. Humble yourself. And then we throw our anxieties upon him. We tell him all about the storms in our lives. We tell him all about what's going on and say, God, I need your help. I'm just under the weight of this, whatever it may be. I need you to come alongside and work with me to get this taken care of. For today's message, God convicted me of areas in my life where I have not totally surrendered some things in my life had not to him. So as I sat in my bedroom studying and praying and studying and praying, and God's like, "No, if you're going to talk to people about this on Sunday, you better deal with this. those areas that came to your mind. I had some bunch of them come to my mind as well. I said, you've got to humble yourself and give it over to me. You've got to cast those fears, those anxieties upon me. And let me take care of it. Because, you know, not only can God take care of it, not only can God remove these things in our lives, but He wants to. He wants to come alongside us to help us to remove those things.